What's up? This is Awesome Listeners. We are back with episode eight. Can you believe we're already at episode eight, Husky? I cannot believe we're at episode eight. It's, it's seriously super cool. We've reached eight episodes this year. We've had some incredible guests. Actually, all of them have been incredible. We've learned so much. And, um, and thank you for joining us on this journey of this, this podcast, I guess. It's, it's, been, it's been pretty cool. So um, we just want to continue doing them, and we hope you continue listening to it. Friendly reminder to all of you, if you're not already following us on all of our social media channels and subscribe to us on iTunes, why? What are you waiting for? Why? Hit that subscribe button. Follow us on our channels. You can see our cool pics on Instagram at TIA Show. Um, like our incredible tweets at the TIA underscore show. And follow us on SoundCloud as well for easy listening. Yeah, um, that's a, yeah. You know, Tiana's very smart, so you should probably listen to her about that. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, Tiana, who do we have today? We have Mr. Sam Sullivan. You probably know him as the former mayor of Vancouver, but he has so much going for him. His list of accomplishments is never-ending, really. Husky, it'll probably take you about half an hour to list just a few, but go ahead. Tian's <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Sam is, is an incredible human being. Um, he's, he's been elected twice as an MLA in, in, in BC. He, um, he served as a minister of committees, sport, and cultural development, and was responsible for transit. He was a former minister for that. Uh, before that, he's also the former mayor of Vancouver. Um, he was a city councillor from 93 to 2002. He's a member of the Order of Canada. He's a founder of Global Civic Public Society and the Sam Sullivan Disability Foundation. If that's not enough, I don't know what is. Um, so Sam is an incredible human being. He, he, knows, he knows so much about everything. Like I, Every time I see him, I think I've known all there is to know about Sam and then he'll just like wow you his his knowledge of history and and how societies have come to be and his his love of politics is is remarkable it's it's super inspiring so um this is why Tian and I really want to talk to him is, is to see what he really cares about what he does after five o'clock um why he's running for leadership of the BC Liberal Party um and so much more um Tiana, I think I did the whole intro there, but is there anything else uh, you want to add on that? Um, honestly, I think Sam is one of the smartest people I have ever met. The detail, like the extent to which he knows the history of Vancouver and how much he loves the city is just mind-blowing. So I'll leave it at that. We'll let him do the talking. <laughs> and here's episode number eight with Mr. Sam Sullivan. <laughs> so, Sam. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for being with us today, Sam. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So, you know, right now, everything's about what's going on in sort of your, your work life, right, in, in terms of politics. I think we should divert. The, we'll talk about that later on, but I think mainly we want to talk about what, what Sam Sullivan is outside work, you know, what, you, what you're passionate about, what you do, the foundations you've created, and, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, I just want to kick it off by saying, Sam, what do you do after 5 p.m.? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. I um, quite often will do a lot of reading. I'll do a lot of study. Um, I love studying history and different issues. I'm, you know, in the last uh, couple of years, I'm working on these little videos that I make that uh, help 
people understand uh, the history of the province and sort of uh, explore some new narratives of, of where we come from and where we might be going. And then I, uh, I have a couple of other projects that I started that I'm still, you know, working on. And one of them is the transcription of old handwritten documents of uh, Vancouver, where I was uh, very interested in studying the old history of the city. And what I did was I found that so many of these old documents are handwritten. You can't really, uh, the, the, the paper falling apart, it's fading, uh, very difficult to read. So I got some people to uh, start to type them up so that they're searchable and you can read them in whatever font you want. And so that's another thing I do. And then I host these public salons, uh, Lynn and I. We love to bring people together and hear different speakers. And uh, we usually have a, a good audience come and we've had 29 of them so far. And we very much enjoy them. Yeah, that's a lot you do outside work, right now. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit, a little bit more about the public salons, like the premise of them yeah. and how they go down? Right. So this was a, a thing that uh, Lynn and I did for many years. Uh, what we used to do was invite people to a, sh a small dinner with maybe ten people, and we would invite people that we didn't really know. Uh, and that didn't know each other. And then we would um, bring everybody together around a table and just each person would share what their passions are, what their interests are. And so that went uh, very well for a number of years. And then we uh, shifted that into a public salon where we would invite people to speak uh, uh, you know, with an audience. Uh, that's sort of how it transitioned you know, to the public salon. So you've had 28 of them, and thousands of people have sort of got so many different messages. You've, you've never spoken at a salon, have you? No, no, that's the rule, you know. I mean, why would I speak? I've already heard myself, you know. <laughs> so they're very much about pleasure for me and Lynn, you know, to other people that's right. why we do them it's for pleasure mm -hmm. and one thing that I always find so inspiring is that Vancouver has some really interesting people and we're learning that through our podcast too but Vancouver has like really really smart people mm -hmm. so interesting all the little little adventures and the little sub communities and subcultures that exist and uh you know, the businesses, the non-profit groups, and the connections that we have around the world. Yeah, right here. it's a very connected city. Mm -hmm. um, Sam, based, based on, this, on, this, on this topic of Vancouver, why do you love it so much, and why are you so curious about the history, and why do you want to bring it out to the general public with Transcendent Bus and, and the videos that you're doing? Why? Well, um, I like to understand my world, I live in and I like to have a context you know like where did we come from where are we going Vancouver is sort of a such a new city you know it doesn't almost seem like it doesn't have a history you know, we just sort of all 
came and, and it's so many new people moving here constantly so there isn't this sort of shared history that we have so I thought you know I'd like to really see if there is a history that would be something we'd want to uh, something that might inspire us and might you know we might be able to pick out some good things that we might actually um, you know be proud of and uh, usually when you go too far back you know you're kind of worried about what you're going to find because sometimes <laughs> it's pretty awful actually yeah. <laughs> so I did find as we started going back it got really bad and really bad and then when I got back quite far it started changing and it became quite inspirational and quite fascinating do you have an example of that? Well, it's just if you go back in Vancouver's history, you'll find uh, growing, the further back you go, the more racist it is and the more, uh, you know, uh, really not very nice it was. And But when you get back to a certain point, then you find it all changes. And it was a highly multicultural and uh, even secular place. And, uh, you know, when... You know, the big question that I had was, how is it that if we were so racist, say, in the 1920s and that kind of thing, how is it that British Columbia is founded by a black man who was married to a native woman and that they spoke French at home, you know? And uh, this is James Douglas and, and his wife, Amelia, and, uh, and they were... Everybody spoke French back then, you know? Really? And... Uh, and that almost any European person, and you know, that would be married to uh, an Aboriginal person. So all of the, you know, people that were developing from that were mixed race people. And uh, you think, wow, how did that go from there to that racist part of it? You know, and that it uh, the government was actually a private corporation. You know, there was very similar to the East India Company, you know, where the, the, the company actually ran the country, you know. And here the Hudson Bay Company came. And if you go back, say, into the East India Company, well, certainly India, you'll find some awful stuff. And then if you go back even further, you get to the East India Company, and they were very secular, multicultural. They always married with you know, local people, and they usually adopted the religion of the, you know, of India. Mm. You know, so when you go back to there, you find this very, you know, it was just a corporation that functioned as a company. We don't have any of these anymore, but they call them company states. It wasn't a nation state like most of the countries are now. You know, when you go back hundreds of years, you get different forms of government that were completely different from a nation-state. Right now the world is dominated by nation-states, but there were many other forms of government that we don't even have a clue about. You know. And the Hudson Bay Company was a company state, and they, you know, they uh, uh, had a, a policy that no missionaries were allowed in British Columbia. You know, they didn't allow any Europeans to settle here was only allowed for Aboriginal people. They ex accepted the sovereignty of Aboriginal people.
people, they had their own government, but it was only for the people in their little trading communities. And so uh, they also provided free medical and education for all of its people. And uh, some have made the connection between the socialized medicine in Canada came straight out of Saskatchewan, which was the heart of Hudson Bay Company territory. And when the, uh, they brought in free medicine, the older people said it was always free before, you know. <laughs> the company always gave us free medical and education, you know. So, uh, in fact, you know, the Canada's so-called socialist system actually came from the company. Private sector. Yeah, for the <laughs> private sector, exactly. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, as I'm representing a party which is a coalition of the right, I like to remind them that. And I also remind them that the prohibition was very much a left-wing thing. Uh, actually, racism came from the left. It was very much about labor unions. So it wasn't until we got labor unions and democracy that we got racism. So when we had the company, everybody could vote. Uh, you know, there wasn't a race uh, issue there. And they, um, they had this kind of harm reduction approach, you know. They didn't make laws and draconian ideas about people's behavior, you know. It was, um, you know, this was the Wild West. and uh, But when the labor unions came in, then they were very concerned about non-whites, uh, and so they uh, really pushed the government toward racism. And the very first uh, full democracy in British Columbia, it was the legislature that, in 1872, and the very first session they made a, a law against Chinese and Native people uh, that they couldn't vote. So it wasn't. It was the very blossoming of democracy brought in racism, and from there, things went downhill for you know about fifty years until you know society's consciousness changed and some other things changed and more education and such. But before then, under the company, there was no of this racism or or even sense of prohibition, uh, you know, it was the, uh, the reformists that brought that. So Sam, you're so knowledgeable about the history of Vancouver and um, the people of Vancouver, and your work is so people-oriented. Um, so obviously your perspective on um, life in Vancouver, life in BC in general is so broad. Um, how do you find that this impacts your work every day? Oh, I find that uh, having a better knowledge of where we came from, um, you know, the, uh, I, I refer to Winston Churchill's is said to have, uh, you know, said that uh, the further back you look, the farther forward you see. You know, so if you can see the trajectory, you know, even though you're just in one point of time, by knowing where we came from, you can see a sense of where we're going. Uh, I also had to look more about the history of cities and why I felt I was not able to accomplish the things that I wanted to accomplish when I was mayor. 
I started off on certain directions and I had um, identified two big threats to the community. One was high house prices and one was overdose deaths. And at that time we were almost 100 deaths a year and prices of housing had been going up for uh, several decades. And so I created an initiative called EcoDensity, which was meant to raise the supply of housing so that we have a lot more housing and dampen the price. And then also to give uh, low-dose drugs to addicted people. You know, we felt that really this is you know, not working, whatever we were doing for the last 100 years. And, and addiction in Vancouver has a more than a 100-year history and we keep doing the same thing over and over again. Every 15 years, we forget what we did before, and we say, hey, I got a good idea. Why don't we just get tough with addicts, you know? And every 15 years, we do this again, and, you know, it turns into a disaster, and then everybody stops and, you know, forgets about it for a while, and 15 years later, we do it again. So uh, those are things that I wanted to know, and I felt if I knew the history of the city better, I could really understand why uh, I wasn't able to get them done and maybe how I might be able to in the future. Hmm. You recently, in, I think uh, I think you were speaking to Corey on Roundhouse, you spoke about the housing crisis and you, and you said, um, well, and, and, and knowing you for so long, you've, you've spoken about how like the West End did a good job in correct me if I'm mistaken, but in intensifying the neighborhood and lots of buildings, lots of residential areas. So they did well. I think it was the 1980s. Correct me if I'm mistaken, please. 1960s. 1960s, I'm sorry. Um, and, and, and you mentioned that there's certain neighborhoods in Vancouver that have fewer people living in today than there were, again, in, in, in the 1970s or 1960s, yes, correct? Yes. What, what happened? Why, why are people like Chen and I not able to yeah my place that's a really good question and my answer is that in 1970s 1973 to be exact a revolution in city government happened a new completely new political party got elected and they were very anti-density they uh down zoned the whole west end and since that time it has been almost impossible to upzone any single-family homes, areas. So any suburban areas in the city have been there at least since the 1970s. And before that, in the 60s, there was a market. The market really uh, was respected. And so the prices started to go up. And so all of a sudden, all of these single detached homes in the West End, which was full of you know just these little homes, uh, they got converted into different types of buildings, like towers or six stories or three stories. And, you know, all of these buildings just kind of blossomed. And, uh, and most of the old Vancouver was appalled. They said, this is a horrible thing. How did we ever let this happen? This is not what we want for our city. And so they had a big backlash against it. And uh, for before 1973, there were 250 uh, residential towers built. After it, for the next decade, there were less than 20. So it completely ground to a halt. 
Wow. Yeah. And so from that point on, we've had this same culture in City Hall. Anti-density. We love the suburbs. we got to stop this growth. And when you do that to any economic market, you will create a high house price. You'll create a high price because you restrict supply. So my feeling is, and actually I've identified there were three different revolutions in city history, you know, in the 1860s, uh, 1910s, and then the 1960s. And these were three revolutions. And, and then I think, well, it seems like there's 50 years between each of these revolutions. Maybe the 2010s, you know, maybe we're ready for the next wave. So I said, hey, we need a fourth wave of revolution. And we need to come in and wipe out uh, the, the things of the past that have caused us the troubles. Uh, and keep the good stuff, because there was a lot of good stuff. We have to bust open the, 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 the system and allow housing. Right now, housing is illegal in most of the um, residential areas. You cannot build new housing. All you get is this same old suburban stuff in the middle of the city. And as you pointed out, many neighborhoods of the city have less people today than they did in the 1970s. Okay, so Sam, we're just going to uh, go a little off topic here. There's a question that we always ask, and I'm so curious to know. Um, is there a book that you've read that changed your perspective on something? Some important books that I've read recently is Democracy for Realists. And uh, this is a very uh, powerful book that is uh, very scholarly. It's by some respected academics who try to see if there's a real basis, a solid philosophical basis for democracy. And they conclude that there isn't, that <laughs> it's uh, actually, uh, you know, requires us to really work at it and to try to make something out of it, but it doesn't actually have any fundamental basis in any any real solid uh, foundation. There's another book uh, called Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. It's about how we deal with the end of life, you know, how we deal with dying and, and as a society. So it really helps us to, you know, to uh, take stock of how we handle this as a society and, and it believes we need to do things a lot differently. Then there's another book by Taylor Owen who is a local guy called Disruptive Power and talks about how the new technology of uh, communication and how we spend our time with online, uh, how that's changing so many things. It's called The Crisis of the State in the Digital Age. Mm. And so as a politician, you know, I'm very interested in what the digital world is doing to the nation state and the assumptions of government. Mm. There's three books. 
Wow. Yeah, those are three. <laughs> 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 <Modern Ottoman too>. <laughs> <laughs> Very different from each other, but yeah, yeah. Those are three cool books. Sam, you've <clears throat> outside work, you you've founded several foundations. Um, and it's led you to being, you know, a recipient of the Order of Canada, which is remarkable. Um, one that we have found a lot of interest in and very curious about is the Sam Sullivan Disability Foundation. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about um, how that came about, what you've accomplished, and specifically um, rowing, and how that all ties into it too? Yes, well, I when I was uh, injured, became a quadriplegic in a skiing accident. It took me a number of years to sort of get my balance again. But then I set some goals as to what I would like to do, you know, and I wanted to be more active, so set up a sailing society, a disabled sailing association. We have an outlet here on Jericho Beach, eight sailboats and, you know, a thousand sailing sessions every summer. And then we set up a, um, an initiative in False Creek, which is... Uh, paddleboarding and also kayaking so there's the two available for people with disabilities so you know it's been a pleasure for me and Lynn to go kayaking together in the summer and uh, paddleboarding as well so and then there's another project where I drew out an idea of what I felt could get me into the wilderness with a one-wheel vehicle uh, with one person behind, one person on the front. And so we call it a trail rider, and we've got a program in UBC Pacific Spirit Park, and that has you know several hundred people with disabilities that go out in the forest and do hikes in the local mountains here. Oh. And uh, you know the trail rider has actually, it's a real business now, sold about 200 around the world. And uh, it's been to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro three times. Oh, wow. And to the base camp of Mount Everest uh, once. Wow. Yeah, so people have been taking this uh, machine and using it to get into all sorts of amazing places. Very cool. Wow. Um, Sam, let's, let's, you know, you don't respect your time. Um, you know, last sort of piece of conversation is... Um, a little bit of a serious one, um, and and that's you know you're running for leadership of the BC Rural Party. Um, I worked with you closely on the previous election, um, the provincial one, um, and I totally see why you're running, and I, and I think it's important that you are. Um, what made you want to do that, and um, how do you think that's going right now? Well, I was, um, you know. Elected for four years now uh, in the BC legislature, and you know, as a backbencher, uh, you don't have a lot of input into things. So for me, it was just like uh, being able to break loose and you know to speak about uh, things that I believe in. And really, the only time you can do that uh, and not be subversive and you know going rogue or you know freelancing or whatever you want to call it is during a leadership contest because at that point the party has no party line there's no uh, you know uh, 
there's no leader that you have to you respect to you know let them set the direction now it's a wide open fight for the heart of the party and so I'm just throwing in all my ideas and uh, you know it's a great relief for me to be able to just speak quite openly and freely without feeling like I'm you know jeopardizing the party or putting it in a different difficult position so um, for me it's a great pleasure to be able to speak about very innovative things I feel are things that need to be discussed I was worried that a leadership process might just have a lot of timid ideas and you know people playing it safe and not wanting to jeopardize you know any votes or whatever so I don't have any of those problems I'm just out there you know <laughs> letting it loose and uh, I um, you know uh, chances of me winning I, I think I'm a, definitely a long shot but uh, I'm getting a lot of people saying that they were they're voting for me as their number two vote <laughs> and uh, with our preferential ballot number two if I got enough of those I would win huh. you know so we don't think anybody will get 50% on the first ballot there's six people and they each have their own uh, constituencies so the question is, who are people going to vote for number two? And uh, I have this strategy that, uh, you know, I'm, I might just be able to pull it off. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you do. I think, I think you'd make a great leader. <laughs> Sam, thank you so much. Um, you know, I've known you, I think, for two years now. Mm. And every time we chat, I learn and get inspired every mm. single time, so... Thank you for all that you've done for me. Thank you for what you've done for the city, the country. Um, and, and thank you for your time. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being interested. I'm <laughs> proud to be uh, <laughs> able to talk about this. You know, I think, I think we have to do a part two sometime because I want to learn more about you sp things you spoke about today, actually. And I think, I think we might set that up uh, yeah. later on <laughs> when you're a bit less busy, let's say. <laughs> all right, Sam. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, thank you both.